Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they've developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up-to-date and on track with ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA, OIG, Medicare, Waste, Fraud, and Abuse compliance requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training, all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with EpiCompliance through their Business Associate Center. And most importantly, in our profession, EpiCompliance covers you with billing and coding for waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with EpiCompliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? You might as well do it right with EpiCompliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code Ozark20. That's O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello, and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara, and I am your host today. Our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, and our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Our disclaimer is that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on our over 20 years of experience in the coding and billing industry, and our goal is to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. Today, of course, is episode two of season four. I hope you enjoyed episode one. We're starting this, of course, new season. Going to bring you some great topics, things that have been requested by our listeners, and topics, questions that I get frequently that I feel like, okay, I'm going to answer this question in the form of an episode so I can reach more people. So hopefully, if it's a question you've had, it'll, of course, alleviate some of the concern you've had. I find that one of the biggest questions I get a lot is what modifier am I going to use on this or what modifier am I going to use on this? So we're going to talk about common modifiers for global billing uh, and other areas as well. So we hope that this whole course brings some alleviation to some of your worries when you get a claim denied and you want to understand the modifiers, right? So the functions of modifiers, right, we understand they can alter something whether or not they tell the insurance company, I performed more 
um, of the service in this instance, or I perform less of the service in this instance. Uh, maybe, of course, you need to identify that this was done um, in a bilateral structure and I perform both sides. Um, there's a modifier for that, we know. There's modifiers for each side. Sometimes we perform multiple procedures and we have to understand the appropriate way to report those, whether it's using a modifier or whether it's knowing, of course, RVUs, the relative value units, and knowing which code should go first on the claim and which code should go second so that we can get paid appropriately. And then sometimes when we perform only a portion of the service, like in the instance of a professional or technical component, we have to know, okay, where am I performing this procedure? Am I the physician? Am I the facility that owns the equipment? Or do I own the equipment and am I the physician uh, performing the professional side? So you have to know all of those things. Is there more than one surgeon involved? Sometimes there is more than one surgeon involved, whether it's co-surgery, assistant surgery, team surgery, it happens. There's some of the things we want to remind ourselves. And I always say, these are the questions, whatever I present uh, on this topic at national conferences or any other uh, webinar or other events, um, I like my series of questions. And I am a, a girl that I like to be, okay, I'm going to start doing this now. What do I need to know before I start? So I'm going to give you these questions. These are questions that I feel you should ask yourself whenever you start to code and need to understand the modifiers. Am I coding an evaluation and management service or am I coding for a surgery where we're breaking the skin and we're actually performing a procedure? Does this modifier that I'm looking at, is it only for evaluation management services or is it only for surgery codes? Believe it or not, there are some times I've seen denials because an E&M only modifier was applied to a surgery and vice versa. You do need to know if the patient is in a global period. CMS and AMA CPT have their definitions of what is included in the global package, which is why we're talking about global billing and modifiers, because they do um, kind of affect each other in some ways. So you need to know, um, does this procedure have a 0, a 10, or a 90-day global period? If I'm going to be doing this procedure or seeing this patient and they're in that period, is there a modifier I can apply to unbundle that service? Because remember, there are certain things that are included in every procedure, including the basic evaluation management service that is included in that, in that procedure. So it's in order to unbundle that during that period, do I have um, a leg to stand on, so to speak? Have I described enough? Am I doing something over and above that service? So that's something that we want to understand. Does the modifier affect payments? Payment affecting modifiers should be listed first. Any informational modifiers should be replaced after that uh, payment affecting modifier. So that is something to keep in mind when looking at everything. Ask yourself those questions. Now, for CMS purposes, they have their global surgery outlined in their global packet. And so I'm going to put in our show notes uh, some links to helpful information. Um, I love all of the CMS um, booklets and um, fact sheets. If you need to know anything quickly and reference that, because remember, CMS is an authoritative source on information. So we always want to reference them as well as other areas, right? Uh, but for billing purposes, they do have a lot of information. A lot of payers follow their guidance. Yes, you want to go to your specific payer website to see how they interpret a certain modifier. Uh, but in the end, a lot of them do follow Medicare. Uh, so look at your CPT definition. And then if your payer has a different interpretation of that, always be aware of that. 
So Medicare, their global package includes all the post-operative complications of care that do not require a return to the OR, the operating room. They do not allow payment unless the surgeon needs to return to the OR during that post-operative period. Any care provided at the bedside, in the office, or in the ER for post-operative complications are part of that global package and not separately billable. Something to keep in mind because sometimes, you know, providers, they want to see a patient, they, it's a complication, but they want to still bill for that service because they're examining the patient and they're, they're providing some kind of, you know, um, evaluation management service. But they need to know per CMS, if it's a complication, they expect you to see the patient and take care of them as part of the payment they're already giving you within that time frame from the date of the surgery to the end of the global period. So be aware that that's their rule. Now, CPT does not have that rule. But there are, of course, the basic package requirements that are very similar with Medicare, with the exception of the complication rule. But yes, all of your local infiltration, the anesthesia, all that stuff is included. The evaluation management services that are subsequent to the decision on the day before and or the day of surgery, that includes the HMP that's required by the hospital if they're going into the hospital care. So that's why when we use the modifier 25, for instance, we're going to get into that. It's the day of surgery. It's, the, it's that day. It's a zero-day global for most of that stuff. So if it's a zero-day global, you use a 25, zero or 10, and you see that being applicable in that, in that instance. And so you have to know that, yes, do I have enough outside of this procedure to get myself an E&M service? Because normally it's included in that, in that day of the surgery. It includes the immediate post-op care all the way up until that global period has ended. Orders. Evaluating them in the post-anesthesia recovery area. The typical post-operative follow-up care. All of those things are um, going to be included in that package. So know the difference there. Um, And the information uh, for the um, AMA guidelines, if you go to the surgery section, I think it's page 84 of your 2021 AMA CPT professional code book, you're going to find all of the information there in writing. And then, of course, I will put the uh, global surgery uh, booklet from CMS in our show notes, as mentioned, so you can compare the two. It's a really good idea to do that. Something to keep in mind, of course, is the definitions of a major surgery and a minor surgery, because that will affect what modifiers you use. So if the patient had a major surgery, that is preoperative period of one day, the day of the surgery, right? With 90 days postoperative. So it's really 91 days, right? It's 90 days after the surgery. A minor surgery, of course, is the day of the procedure with a postoperative period of either zero or 10 days. So if you see a patient that day, you do the procedure that day as a zero, zero day global, the next day, yes, you can bill an E&M service because it's outside of that global period. Uh, 10 days later, so 11 days later, technically, you're going to be, of course, um, being able to be outside of that uh, period there for a minor surgery. Now, I want to keep in mind, too, when we're looking at the E&M guidelines, I always highlight this every time I talk about E&M because the guidelines for risk on the risk uh, section of the guidelines are different interpretation than the CMS global package. A minor procedure and a major procedure based on Medicare has to do with their billing guidelines. But when we're thinking about coding and leveling for E&M services, just a reminder, it's the clinical definition of minor versus major, not the CMS definition, just to clarify that. 
Modifier 24 is the first one I'm going to talk about today, which is an E&M only modifier. It goes on the E&M service, that office visit procedure or that um, hospital visit um, evaluation management service, um, because you saw the patient for something that was unrelated to the service they are in the global package for. Usually it's going to be a different body part, which is the most easily recognizable way. It has to have a different diagnosis. Um, it's something specifically different or unrelated, completely unrelated to the service they are in the global package for. Because if it's related, it's going to be part of that global package. So we don't want to be billing for E&M services, billing for more than we are supposed to get paid for. We're already getting paid in that global package for that surgery. They've included that in the relative value unit. They've included that in the fee they're paying you. So it's really fraudulent to try to bill services outside of that that are related to what you've already been paid for, right? So a patient has surgery and is now here, uh, maybe they've had a hip surgery, and now they're here because they had a fractured collarbone. Clearly unrelated uh, body parts, right? Let's move along and let's talk about 25. Again, another E&M only modifier. This is for a significant, separately identifiable E&M service by the same physician or other qualified healthcare professional and same day of the procedure or other service. Now, uh, the documentation does need to show that there was outside of that normal global package something else that you can carve out to account for that evaluation management service. And since we're in 2021 guidelines, there's been a lot of questions. Um, I'll be presenting on this topic uh, in our upcoming co conference I'll be attending in Florida for Decision Health uh, for orthopedics. A lot, of, a lot of orthopedic physicians have questions about the appropriateness of using that, especially with joint injections, because that has a zero-day global. They're done the same day as, the, of course, the office visit. Can I build that in addition to the procedure? Normally, if they're there for that purpose, that's the reason they came in to have that injection. It already includes the main components of a normal evaluation management service. So ask yourself, am I gonna be talking about something else? Are they showing any other symptoms besides that knee pain or the reason that they're doing that procedure? Or am I going to be doing something outside of that additional, if there's maybe some aggravation or there's maybe a need for surgery um, out after this injection, like you know you gotta do that, like you're gonna recommend that procedure because they have you know, advanced um, osteoarthritis, they have maybe a beniscus tear, and you're just doing that injection just to alleviate the pain for that moment, but you're going to go ahead and order that. Uh, and you have significant um, information documented to, of course, give you that separately identifiable service. You've gone over and above what's normal, what would normally be included in that evaluation management that's part of the procedure, then you can append the 25. So this modifier doesn't necessarily need to have a separate diagnosis. There has to be enough there in the E&M service. Do you have enough documented uh, to go um, and count just for the E&M service and that you're not going to use the same information to, for your procedure? So whatever you're doing the procedure for, is there something outside of that that you can use in your documentation to account for uh, that E&M service? Because right now it's only MDM for office visits. So you have to be able to get something else in the problem section, something in data or something in the risk, two of those items together outside of the injection procedure to get the E&M service. So think about it that way. And if you have questions, reach out to me um, if that wasn't clear or if you need clarification or have a specific scenario, write to me. 
leave me a voicemail on Anchor. I love hearing those voicemails and those questions, specific scenarios that I can answer on a a future podcast episode. So please, please, please give me your questions. I want to help. Now, um, when it comes to the next modifier I'm going to talk about is for E&M only. It's 57. This is, of course, when they had a procedure, right? And it's a 90-day global. And so this accounts for the day before the surgery. So let's say you're seeing the patient that day. You decide they need surgery. You're either going to go that day right away, which happens like for appendectomies, for instance, or you're going to go the next day. It will allow you to separate that E&M service because you made the decision for surgery that day and it has a 90-day global and you're going to go ahead and, and, and do that. That's the day you made the decision for surgery. So that's what you have to be aware of. Um, E&M services that result in the initial decision to perform that surgery and that's furnished during the post-operative period. Remember, it starts the day after, right, the procedure. So the day before the surgery or the day of you can count the E&M service. You made that decision. They're allowing you to bill that E&M service. But anything after that is part of that global package. Now let's talk about our 22 modifier. We're now going to move into some procedure-only modifiers. So we're left E&M only. Now we're in procedures. So anything I mentioned from this point forward should never go on an evaluation management service. Now the, the modifier 22 is for increased service. It's significantly greater than usual. Um, you do have to have documentation to support that. Um, a time is really helpful as well. If you spent so much time, please give us that time in the documentation. Describe the patient body habitus. What made it more difficult than usual? Please give us that information. Um, and when you submit those claims electronically, um, some EMRs don't let you attach the records right away. So you may get information from the payer on their portal and say, please send records. Sometimes you can do it right away. Other times you have to wait. And so always keep up to up on that. Like really watch it because if you miss that opportunity to attach that, you know, you make it denied. So be always, um, always looking for that um, request for those records and showing that justification. So a patient had a colonoscopy and a polyp was removed. They removed the polyp and this caused excessive bleeding and an extra 30 minutes of time is spent controlling the bleeding. Now, as far as the code is concerned, we know that if you cause the bleeding, you don't get to report the control of bleeding code. But if it was extensive, you're still gonna report your main procedure that was what you did, right? Uh, you have to try to repair that as the surgeon, you're going to do that. But if there is excessive bleeding going on and you have to try to control that, um, you can add the 22 because it's more than normal. You know, maybe you, there's normal bleeding you have to control, but if it's just excessive and it goes beyond the normal time frame that's normal, then you can report that um, uh, and, of course, report that with the documentation to support that. There are other modifiers that we use for surgery, like the bilateral modifier. We use the reduced services, 52, 53 for discontinued. We have 78, 58, and 79 for those um, those that are part of the global package. If we have to go back to the OR or there's some situation, we have those modifiers we're going to talk about. Obviously, bilateral is pretty clear. We have two body parts of something sometimes, right? We have two ears, two um, hands, uh, two arms, two legs, two feet. Um, we have two breasts, uh, we have, you know, uh, two of some things, right? So we're going to think bilateral for those instances. There are some codes that actually describe in the description of the code, 
unilateral or bilateral, uh, or the bilateral is, is part of the code. So it wouldn't be necessary, right, to append a modifier. Modifiers are only needed to modify something that isn't already there. So think about it that way. Don't just slap on a modifier. If you're in denial and it says a modifier is appropriate or a modifier is missing, really, really think about what's happening. Look at the code description for what you actually build. What modifier could possibly be appropriate? If you're missing a laterality modifier and it's needed, then yes, that's appropriate. But if it's um, not necessary, then think what other modifiers could be appropriate in this instance. And always check your payer because there, sometimes your payers have their own modifiers that you not, may not be aware of. They're not in the CPT codebook. They have their own modifiers for billing purposes. And your scenario fits in that circumstance based on the procedure you performed, the place of service they're in, and the diagnosis. So pay attention to your payer requirements. Um, there are specific examples in your codebook like the code 50592. It's ablation of one or more renal tumors. It says percutaneous unilateral radiofrequency. So they actually do specify that it's unilateral. So they may tell you when or when to, to build that modifier if it needs it. Then there's the example of a biopsy, 58900, the biopsy of the ovary, unilateral or bilateral. So you wouldn't be able to report the modifier because either way, it's going to be part of the description. That's just a good example of that. And check your payer on how to report that bilateral modifier. Uh, when I have to read our RVE report every month and I have to tell our uh, financial director because they have to pay the physician based on the RVUs and if they have to give them credit for something, we have to know, of course, how did the payer interpret this. So sometimes they want you to report um, one line, the 50 modifier, to say yes, and Medicare is one of them, they like the 50. Uh, and then maybe your payer wants you to do it differently, like they want you to do two lines with the RT and the LT the right and left, separate lines. Other payers still want two lines, but they maybe want 50 with one of the laterality modifiers together. So 50 RT and then the second line LT. And so it just depends on the, on the, on the insurance. Now, our particular Medicare, Medicaid carrier in Arkansas, they want the 50 modifier with two units. So I have to constantly be on my toes to keep up to date on the bilateral instructions for my payers. So there's a lot of differences you got to be up to date on it. Now, I want to talk about the 58 modifier. This is for a staged or related procedure by the same physician or another QHP, qualified healthcare professional, during the postoperative period. So they've already had a surgery. They're in global, either 10 days or 90 days. And during that procedure, they have to go in, maybe induce something else. Maybe it's more extensive than the original one. They think of a knee, knee arthroscopy that they have to go back and they decide, okay, within that period, we need to now go do a full knee replacement. It's more extensive than the original procedure. And so it's technically related, same knee, same condition, same issue. But now it's, of course, become necessity to do a more extensive procedure or more major procedure. So we're going to go ahead and do that. So you're going to get to start that global package all over again now with that new procedure. And you're going to get, of course, the full payment for that. So be aware of that. Um, so it also means stage. Sometimes you do one procedure, um, you have to do it in stages. So you're going to do another one, like maybe the next period, and then and later you're going to schedule another one in stages. So you have to know, is it related to the original condition or is it to the, related to the original surgery? If it's the same condition, it's related, right? And so it's going to be staged. 
If it's a, related to the original surgery, it could be a complication, right? So in comes our 78, which is a um, procedure that is, of course, part of the global package, but it's um, returned to the OR for that purpose. And what's the key word here? It's unplanned, an unplanned return, right? So there's been some kind of complication from the first procedure. They may have had an outpatient procedure, but then they have to go back to the OR uh, because of some complication that occurred. Um, so be aware of the uh, implications, though, of what that means. Um, it could infect reimbursement. Now, um, a new postoperative period is not going to begin again with a 78 because it's related to that original surgery, it's a complication. So we're not gonna get maybe the same reimbursement either. It's gonna be maybe paid at 70 or 80% of the original uh, pricing. So um, you're going to see an example here when we think about maybe a gastric bypass procedure. That procedure has a 90 day global. But then less than 90 days, we have to go in because we see that on, there's an incisional hernia on that incision. It's related to that procedure, it's a complication. They now have a hernia that's developed on that incision site. They have to go back to the OR for an incisional hernia repair because it's due to that, it's at the same site as a procedure. It's not something that they plan to do, right? There are some instances where they know if this doesn't work, I'm gonna have to do this. But this is an actual complication uh, that developed because of that procedure. Um, not because of the condition, but because of the procedure. So think about it that way. And another modifier that affects the global package is, of course, the 79 modifier, unrelated surgery. So this, is, I think, is the cousin to the 24, right? 24 is for e 79 is for procedures. So several days after a discharge, for instance, the patient has to return for an unrelated procedure. So you're typically going to see, yes, that separate diagnosis that clearly identifies that it is unrelated, and you're going to see different body parts most of the time, I hope, right? So January, they come in for an amputated uh, DIP joint at the finger, and in March, they come back and they have to do a below-the-knee amputation. Not related whatsoever. They are different body parts, and so in order to tell the insurance company, yes, I had to go take them, and this is completely unrelated, I should get full reimbursement for this because it has nothing to do with that finger at all. And so... Things happen, accidents happen, patient may have a problem, but then they fall or have an accident, something happens, right? Unforeseen, but it's unrelated, so we can get that 79 modifier on our claim. So next, we're going to talk about the 59 modifier. Overused and abused and misinterpreted and documentation sometimes does not support it. And it's one that people fear, and I don't want you to fear it. The 59 can be very useful, but again, it's a modifier of last resort. We don't want to use it um, in the wrong instances. So if two procedures aren't bundled or are billable on their own without a modifier, please don't add the 59. Uh, I always say, you look at your payer guidelines. Um, Medicare may bundle something with their NCCI edits, um, but another payer may not be bundling something. Maybe you're used to this. These two always bundle, but maybe that insurance payer doesn't bundle them. So um, pay attention to that. CPT may not bundle something that CMS will and vice versa. So be very aware of your payer guidelines, the actual code description before applying this. But if you have to use it, it's okay. Um, if you don't understand a bundle, some I get questions all the time. People don't understand why things are bundled. 
Um, but it could just be because of the nature of the procedure. Um, a lot of people don't have access to an encoder. And those lay terms are very helpful. I always say code from your books. It's really important. There's a lot of information found in encoders that help us understand behind the scenes what's actually happening during the procedure so we can see, okay, during this procedure, they're doing this. And if this happens, it becomes necessary to do this. So in that payment, I always tell my physicians, in that payment you're getting, they've already accounted for incidental procedures that could happen. So they're giving you the full value of what you are doing. You're already getting that in this RVU value. You're getting paid for that. But they expect maybe that this may happen or this may happen. And what are you going to do? Just close the patient up and not do it? Absolutely not. That wouldn't be good patient care. You're going to do this procedure because it's necessary. But you know you're getting paid for it already and you're going to do it because it's, it's of course, appropriate. But in the event that you can um, add the 59, it maybe it's a different session or encounter. So you do something and later that same day, you got to bring them back at a different session and do something else that's bundled to that procedure normally. So you can add the 59. I get questions a lot about colonoscopies and I teach regularly about this uh, topic. So I wanted to, of course, use this as an example when I'm detailing part of the reason to report a 59 is if there is a, of course, a different, a separate incision, excision, um, or if it's a separate body part, uh, a separate lesion, a site or organ system. So uh, sometimes there's confusion on the colon because we may perform two different procedures that are, of course, bundled, but they're done on different parts of the colon. But keep in mind the definition that CMS has on what a separate site or organ system is. And of course, if it's a separate lesion, like a colon polyp, every polyp you remove is a separate lesion. Um, if you're doing another incision at that site, a separate incision, you're incising uh, or excising, as the definition mentions, then it's appropriate to report a 59. So read the definitions, what is appropriate in order to do that. So if an edit allows for the modifier, so usually when you look at the code pairs, the first column will say this is reportable. The second code is only reportable if a modifier is allowed. And if they have the modifier indicator allowed, um, then you can look at the 59 and say, okay, do I have documentation to support the use of it? Just because you're allowed to use it doesn't mean you have the documentation to support it, right? So be aware of that. It's one of the really high level misuses of this modifier is saying, oh, it says I can add one, but it doesn't mean you can if your documentation doesn't support the definition of the 59. So do you have a leg to stand on, so to speak? So we may see, for instance, the big kahuna, the big problem is our 45385 for our colonoscopy with removal of tumors and polyps by snare technique. And then we have the 45380, which is colonoscopy flexible with biopsy single or multiple. So this is an example of um, two codes that are bundled. They expect that most of the time you're going to report the snare and the biopsy is going to be incidental um, because it's single or multiple as in the description. So it doesn't matter how many you report, how many you remove, it's, it doesn't matter, it's the same code. So you can't report it multiple times anyway. So they're thinking, okay, you're already in there, you're doing this, but I'm going to say, okay, in this instance, look at your documentation. Do you have documentation to support the use of 59? Do you have a separate incision, a separate excision, separate lesion, and is it considered a separate site or organ system um, by the payer. 
they have their own interpretation. So what does CMS say? What is their interpretation of a separate cyto organ system? Well, let's go to the source. Now, according to the official CMS uh, file, the official fact sheet information on the 59 modifier, which I'm going, of course, to put in my show notes for you. I always like to give you lots of references from authoritative sources. Uh, the appropriate and inappropriate uses of these modifiers are listed. And the first thing they say is, in order to appropriately use the 59 or the XS modifier for a separate site that we use for Medicare now, um, it says, okay, was it performed on a different organ, a different anatomic region, or here's the kicker, in limited situations on different non-contiguous lesions in different anatomic regions of the same organ. So that is something to think about when you're looking at the colon, because that could be an instance you could interpret that right to mean that it's a non-contiguous lesion. Um, in a different anatomic region of the same organ. So you have the descending part of the colon, you're in a different um, anatomic region of the same organ. You are, of course, going next to the ascending colon, or you're in the uh, sigmoid colon. Are those uh, considered, by definition, ask yourself that, and I'm I'm not telling you what to do, I will never do that, but I'm giving you the information, ask yourself. Are these non-contiguous lesions in different anatomic regions of the same organ? Can you justify that? Can you stand behind your documentation uh, with the definition of that intact? Um, You can look at those definitions. They do give us some examples, though, of treatment of contiguous structures in the same organ that can constitute treatment and would be examples of that. So, They say in their document, their fact sheet, they give you an example. This is, of course, uh, for the treatment of nails, for instance, the nail bed and any soft tissue that's distal to and including the skin overlying that IP joint on the same toe or finger is a single anatomic site. They also say the treatment of a posterior segment structure in the ipsilateral eye, that's the same eye, constitutes the treatment of a single anatomic structure. So they give you examples of that. So you need to try to do your best to learn about um, the different parts of of an organ. Is it considered a a contiguous or a non-contiguous site uh, of that same organ? So let's think about the definition of that. So as you know, I'm a definitions girl. I repeat this over and over again. I look up the definition. What does non-contiguous mean? In the dictionary, it means not touching, not contiguous. So I think about the anatomically, are these structures touching each other? But again, I'm not an expert. I'm doing my best to understand the anatomy and understand the the way the body uh, looks inside, right? So you could always ask your physician, what does this mean? How would you describe this? Can you use this terminology in your documentation? But again, if it's Medicare, we always have to go back and look at our NCCI manual and see, is there anything in that manual that I need to be aware of that can affect my code assignment? With these two codes, there specifically is. There is an NCCI procedure to procedure edit, as we know, for the 45385 and the 45380. It specifically says in the NCCI manual, which we have to follow for Medicare and Medicaid, that um, if we look and these two procedures are billed and we need to bypass with a modifier 59 or an excess, The use of that 59 or excess is only appropriate if the two procedures are performed on separate lesions. Use of modifier 59 or XE, which is separate encounter, 
is only appropriate if the two procedures are performed at separate patient encounters. Again, which would make sense, right? There are times when I have coded for a physician and he does, of course, remove a polyp, a lesion from one part of the colon with a snare. And then other times he just does a biopsy because he's looking for something else, but he didn't actually remove a polyp or a lesion. He just biopsied the area because he was concerned about a condition. So based on my professional understanding of this guideline, this NCCI manual guideline, I only apply the 59 or the XS if I can see that another lesion was removed. Otherwise, it's bundled into the original procedure. I don't have anything that would equate to a 59 usage based on that guideline. So always read specific wording in your NCCI manual if you are, of course, reporting a service for Medicare or any other payer who follows the NCCI manual. And again, most payers, commercial, they will have information on their website, how they interpret different things. If you can't find anything specifically in their manual to equate to your situation, use your best judgment. If you get denied, look at their policy. You can question that. You know, say, I look throughout all the policy information, I've checked, you know, this, this, and this, and I can't find a reason why this is denied. Where in your manual or your policy can you point to me to tell me the reasoning for this denial? And if you are adamant and you are researching, you are digging deep into those policies, then they're going to not be able to have a leg to stand on because they're denying something um, that isn't clearly documented in their guidelines. So how can they say a true denial if uh, they don't have it in their policy manual? So again, be aware and don't always just accept the denial, but research it and make sure that you have the documentation to support it. If you do, then of course appeal it, do a reconsideration if you maybe need to make an adjustment, maybe you use the wrong modifier, or maybe you use the wrong diagnosis, maybe it was something real simple that you just neglected to report or not report and you realize, okay, this is why it was denied. I'm going to fix this really quick, do a reconsideration or send it back as a correction. I'm going to do an appeal because that's, of course, the insurance recommendation. Uh, we're not going to allow reconsideration. You're going to have to appeal it. Um, sometimes they have reconsideration letters. Sometimes they have official appeal letters. You're going to want to, of course, see what is the appropriate um, form for your situation based on the insurance uh, uh, carrier's requirements. But never, ever just accept the denial if you truly have documentation to support the use of that. So that's just kind of something I want to talk about because the 59 can get so misinterpreted and misused. And um, since we're on the topic of uh, the uh, colonoscopy and GI procedures, uh, there is, of course, other modifiers that we do um, encounter from time to time. Um, and that is our uh, 53 and 52. So I'll just briefly touch on those because I did have sometimes some questions on those. When it comes to whether, you know, whether it's a reduced service or if it is, of course, um, a um, discontinued procedure, right? So we want to understand the difference between a 52 and a 53. So by definition, 52 in your appendix from CPT mentions under circumstances, they, of course, reduce partially or eliminate at the physician's discretion part of the service. So we see often, maybe they don't perform the whole procedure, they only get so far and they just, they don't actually do the whole thing. Other instances where they um, have to discontinue 
because it threatens the well-being of the patient um, or it's indicated that they have to discontinue it after anesthesia has been started. So sometimes these modifiers can be confusing. Um, and so when we're looking at CPT, for instance, I would like for you to open your CPT codebook if you're listening and you have it handy. Um, and it's important to actually turn to the colonoscopy section. Uh, and that is, of course, where the 45378 is. You're going to see a diagram, a decision tree that gives you instructions on how to report some of these items. So I believe it's on page 370, it looks like, of your 2021 CPT codebook. So you're going to see the decision tree. Of course, it's going to ask you, is it diagnostic? Is it therapeutic, right? Because sometimes they start out as diagnostic, then they have to, of course, go in there, remove something, make it surgical, right? So I ask you, does it reach the splenic flexure? Does it not? Then you're going to report 45330. Then it says, beyond the splenic flexure, but not to the cecum. Then it says to report the colonoscopy code with the 53 modifier. And then if it's to the cecum, you can report the 45378 with a mo without a modifier. If it's therapeutic, they actually give you instance when to use a 52, for instance. If it's beyond the splenic flexure, but not to the cecum, report 45379-98, whatever procedure they did, with a 52. Because they went to the splenic flexure, but not to the cecum. So they didn't complete the full portion. They didn't get to a full colonoscopy, whatever surgical procedure they performed. So they want you to use the 52 for that purpose because it was, of course, you're supposed to be therapeutic. You actually did a procedure. You performed a surgical procedure, but not the full component of it. So they would interpret that as meaning the 52 would be appropriate. But in the instance of a diagnostic procedure where it's discontinued because maybe they couldn't get that far, they want you to report the 53 um, if it gets beyond the splenic flexure, but not to the cecum. They interpret that not getting to the splenic flexure equates to um, a sigmoidoscopy, which is why they have you report the 45330. But what if it's a Medicare patient? Well, there is an MLN article, MLN Matters article, that was effective in uh, 2019, and it specifically says that um, when performing a diagnostic uh, or screening procedure, where they are scheduled and prepared for a colonoscopy, if they're unable to advance that scope to the cecum um, due to unforeseen circumstances, they still want you to report the 45378 with the 53 modifier. So in this instance, you know, we interpret that to mean it doesn't say specifically a past the splenic flexure. It just says if it doesn't get to the cecum, they were prepared for a colonoscopy, a full colonoscopy, but they couldn't get there due to unforeseen circumstances, and they had to withdraw the scope, um, and so we're going to add the 53. Now, so that's how we report it. That's how we've always reported at the hospital uh, that I worked for and how we've been advised, of course, by our auditors to report 45378 with a 53 for Medicare patients. So read your CPT guidelines. Read your Medicare um, interpretations um, as appropriate always be up to date on any guidance out there. And you know, if it takes time to kind of research all these things, and you're not gonna be able to do it perfectly right. But there are times where you're going to get a denial, and you're going to have to research why did I get this denial, you're going to find there was an update, there was an article somewhere from the payer that said do this in this instance. And you're going to make note of it, you're going to print it out, put in a file and keep up to date on it. Um, you're going to try your best. And like I said before, please, 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 I've said this before in other episodes, please make sure you get those updates, the MLN articles, because whenever they update something, 
if you are on the email list, they're going to send that update out to you. And you're going to be what the first one to know, one of the first people to know what that change is. So always be up to date on those changes. Well, I hope this is helpful and I hope it helps you understand modifiers a little bit better. We're always going to have situations where we have to adjust and, and modify things. And so modifiers are used for that purpose. So let's not be afraid of them. Let's get to know them. Uh, you look at our payer guidelines, how they interpret them so that can be helpful for us. And everyone has a different specialty they work for. So it's, there's a learning curve with that, right? So we hope you'll join us in 2022 for our upcoming specialty conferences. We're so excited to offer OBGYN services, uh, pediatric, cardiovascular, and oncology, as well as we have started to plan our uh, orthopedic conference for 2022. It is one of our most popular. We get a lot of requests for orthopedics, uh, for surgery, for appeals, uh, ICD-10 coding, uh, and of course, spine as well. And I am a lover of spine coding for ortho. So I always like to take that topic myself and talk about it. We are on the hunt for presenters who want to present at our upcoming conference in 2022 for orthopedics. So if you are an orthopedic expert, please join the team. We have several on board already, but we're always looking for more new faces and new voices to come and educate um, our uh, members and our attendees. We always plan compliance. We always plan ICD-10 anatomy and all the areas uh, of coding. There's so much to code for when it comes to orthopedics. You got the hips, the knees, the shoulders, fingers, toes, uh, of course, the spine, um, all the ins and outs of muscles and tendons and joints. There's so much to know. And so we're again going to give you that information. We talked about modifiers today. So you can guarantee I am going to talk about the 25 modifier when it comes to our next conference uh, in 2022. We're going to talk about appeals and denials. We're going to talk about those specific areas that you struggle with with orthopedics. So we hope you can join us in 2022. Stay up to date. Uh, all, if you follow our page on Eventbrite, you'll get updated when we announce the date of that conference. It's still being planned. We are looking for sponsors. So if you want to sponsor the event, uh, we would love to have you. Um, and our, our prospectus will be, of course, available um, in early 2022 for that event. Well, I want to thank you as always for joining me here at the Life as a Coder podcast. Our goal is to inspire and educate. As you know, I always say knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Never give up on coding. Keep learning and keep growing. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, LLC. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Monday for a new episode. We'll catch you then. Project Resume can make your medical coding dreams come true. From resumes to interview skills to navigating a successful career, Project Resume has the advice you need from coders you can trust. See all that we have to offer at projectresume.net. Be sure to reference this podcast when you place your order.